Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 4th, 2010. So much to talk about today. So little time. Story of my life. Let me make sure I got the source lined up here. It doesn't sound like I'm like, you know, scrambling at the last second. Well, if it sounds that way to you, it's well because it's true. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. This is an important task that really is the job of all Christians. Scripture tells us to test everything test every that that means i'm not exempt from the test that's right you get extra pirate christian radio points i have no idea what they're good for but you get extra uh, points if you test me according to scripture yeah that's right because god's word is true that's right it's true And, um, well, um, you get what I'm saying. And if you're contradicting God's word, then, well, we've got a problem. Uh, We live in an age when people think that they can come up with clever ideas. And they'll sit there and go, well, listen, I'm a Christian. I've been moved by the Holy Spirit. And uh, and I had a mystical experience. And so I'm going to tell you about the theology that came about as a result of the thing that God nudged me in, you know, in the back of the head, you know, uh, when when he when I had that mystical experience. And see, uh, the, you you got to listen to my theology. It's this brand new thing that I've come up with. It's it's n- never been seen before. And and it's it's the missing thing that we've been waiting for. Uh, yeah. When anyone, anyone talks like that, run, run, run. That's right. Um, uh, when, listen, we, we don't need a new revelation. We need Christ. You see, in former days, God spoke to us through prophets and people like that. But now he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We have his words from the eyewitnesses to what he said. And he put a stamp of approval on uh, the Old Testament scriptures, put a stamp of approval on the New Testament scriptures that would be written by the men that he chose. And 
yeah, um, don't need anything else. And if you think that your new thing is also great and th- that everyone needs, yeah, see, that's kind of generally how Satan works because uh, over and again we've seen that these new revelations take our focus off of Jesus Christ and put it on ourselves and uh, completely miss the point. See, the point is Jesus. That's He's the point. It's all about him and what he's done for us. And ultimately, it's not really about um, you. Um, and it's not even about you having a great life now or what. I mean, it's none of that stuff. I mean, I I, I look at the testimony of the apostles, uh, the men who hung out with Jesus for three years. All but one of them died pretty nasty deaths, and, and they experienced all kinds of suffering and beatings and persecutions as a result of their testimony that they were eyewitnesses to the bodily physical resurrection of jesus christ and they called men to repent of their sins and their wickedness and their false religion and and to trust in christ for the forgiveness of your sins and uh, that didn't bode well because um well we sinners by uh we're sinners by nature and when we don't like it when people come and smash our theologies it just you know our, our false theologies because uh, we've puts we've we got ourselves personally invested in those things and as a result of it uh, when somebody comes along and smashes it with Jesus uh we feel threatened and and we don't want to have anything to do with that and so we we lash out and do terrible things <sighs> okay yesterday i said i was tired today i'm like doubly tired i <laughs> i am i'm in a funk I, you know what's funny is I don't think I've ever looked up the definition of the word funk. I mean, I, I'm in one of them though, and um, and the reason I'm in a funk is because I'm 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 kind of bleary eyed, tired is what it comes down to. Is uh, even though I didn't broadcast on Friday last week, uh, I had I had not basically recorded four days of programming in three days, and Thursday was a travel day, and then Friday Saturday was at the emerging conference, Sunday was a travel day back, and then Monday back in the studio. And um, and so I haven't really had uh, time to recharge my mental batteries. And as a result of it, I've, I got this green blinking light saying battery low. It's in, it's in my brain somewhere. And, and so and it's like, OK, what am I going to do? I, you know, I'm just going to slug through it because I, there's just too much to talk about. OK, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um uh, if the guy, one of the guys who writes for the uh, religion section over the Huffington Post, his name is George Ellerick, and uh, George Ellerick has a blog called Everyday Christian, and um, I think George is trying to pick a fight with me, but that's okay. You know, I I, I emailed him. <laughs> he keeps sending me links. I think he wants me to comment on these. He, uh, I think he wants the he wants the exchange. I think he he thinks he's like you know uh, tweaking my you know tail or something. I you know or, or, anyway. Uh, as a result of it, you know, he sent me a link today to something he wrote at his blog everyday uh, everydaychristian dot com. Uh, and um, you know, I I wrote him back and I said, listen, I'll bite. That's it. I'll I, I'll I'll respond to it today on today's program. And so I'm going to be uh, reading. Uh, a blog post. George Ellerick, just if you want to kind of get an idea of where he fits in the theological spectrum, he is definitely somewhere in the liberal emergent camp, in that general camp as a whole. And he is a subjective speculative theologian par excellence. And that's not a compliment. 
<laughs> That's an actual slap. So I'm going to be reading a piece that he wrote uh, and published yesterday entitled Silence as the New Theology, The Inadequacy of Our Words. <laughs> you know what's funny? I, I Oh, man. He emailed me. So I emailed him to let him know that I'd be reading it, uh, the post on the, uh, on the program today. And he, you know, he wanted to know what prompted me to, to uh, respond to it. And, um, and if, if he, if we could somehow continue the conversation. And I, I sent him what I would consider to be probably the most blunt and direct and truthful response I've ever given to some, you know, somebody in the emergent camp who's wanted to have a conversation with me. And um, what I said to him as I said, George, I said, I'd love to continue the conversation, but I don't think that you're going to enjoy it. I said, I am very polemical and I don't pull punches. In other words, if your theological ideas are crap, then I will say that they are crap and I'll probably make fun of them. Most people can't handle this approach because they think I'm mocking them personally, but I don't think people are crap. I think people have crappy ideas and theologies and I take their ideas and their theologies to task. If you can see the difference, then you may survive a conversation with me. If not, then I advise you to save yourself from the years of therapy that will ensue as a result of conversing with me. By the way, uh, the reason I decided to comment on your piece is because your theological ideas are total crap. And I intend to take them to task and utilize a reductio ad absurdum to uh, demonstrate their untenability. Uh, this approach may sound unloving and unkind. I assure you that it is both loving and kind because my goal is to steal your false theology and replace it with the treasure of the true gospel, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scripture and that he rose again on the third day for your justification and he's calling you to repent of your false religion and wickedness and be forgiven if you're okay with that then we can keep talking and uh, that was my email to him so it was um direct blunt to the point and yes i used the word crap Maybe it's just because I'm tired. I, you know, I don't know. So, uh, anyway, we'll be we'll be looking at uh, George Elric's uh, piece uh, from uh, Everyday Christian, and then uh, we got uh, oh man, more Patricia King uh, stuff. Apparently, she's got a video out there talking about visiting heaven. Uh, yeah, she, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Patricia King apparently visits heaven on a regular basis, and uh, in in her glory school, she teaches you how to do it too. So, I mean. If you've been always, you know, if you want to take a vacation to heaven and, you know, visit heaven and you don't, you know, and let's just say that maybe the economy may be bad for you right now. Maybe money's tight. And so you're looking at the upcoming summer months and you're thinking, you know what, we're kind of stuck here. We're going to end up having one of those staycations. Listen, completely understand. I'm with you. Um, You know, I, I, I haven't really taken a real vacation in a while. But that's neither here nor there. But so if if you're thinking about having a staycation, well, maybe this video that I'd be playing audio with, uh, uh, the audio from from Patricia King on visits to heaven, might completely change your outlook of as to where you can have your staycation this year because you could stay at home and visit heaven too. I wish I was making this up. And then uh, let's see here. Uh, um, uh, Mindy Caliguire from a group called Soul Care is uh, featured on a set of instructional videos uh, that the Willow Creek Association has put out on YouTube. 
and it's all about spiritual formation. We're going to listen in uh, to some of these videos today and maybe even tune into some of them in the future. And uh, we'll specifically listen to the opening uh, one as well as taking a look at uh, the l- listening in on the one on silent prayer and uh and you know and see what she has to say about silent prayer i think this is important and then uh for hour number 2 uh we're going to be listening to ligan duncan's uh ligan duncan talk about uh, did the church fathers know the gospel did the church fathers know the gospel that'll be our sermon review today now it's not a sermon it's a lecture but it's a good one so i thought i'd throw that one in uh today because quite frankly <sighs> Hour number one has enough crazy stuff in it. I don't need a wacky sermon to <laughs> top it off. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, we're going to dive into the program proper. And um, so let's, well, I guess this is kind of a news story of sorts. So from everydaychristian.com, George Ellerick, who writes for the Huffington Post, writes, uh, the headline reads, Silence as the New Theology, the Inadequacy of our words. Uh, George Ellerick writes, he says, our society is very tribal. You might comfortably walk down the street and uh, look to your left and see the tribe of Walmart or the tribe of the restaurant Chili's. Sure, they may not be tribes in the ancient sense of the word, but they promote tribal identity. This idea of belonging encased with the possibility of being accepted. If you are part of something uh, if you are part of something, then you somehow feel like you have worth. This idea of worth uh, being partners with and the experience of any sort of community has been around since the beginning of man. Abraham became the father of many nations, which is Hebrew rhetoric for really influential guy. I can, ima- I can imagine it now. Abe, Abe, yeah, Abe, Abe. You're going to call Abraham Abe. Abe! I can imagine it now. Abe and his friends sitting in his tent, drinking some wine, and reminiscing about moments in their life when they made it big. Then Abe chimes in with his story about how the Creator invited him to be the father of many nations. The room is silent with irreverent disgust and uncomfortable laughter, because no matter how hard they try, none of his friends can top that story. Little did Abraham know in this story that his story was an exclusive one, that his unintentional trumping of all other stories created outsiders. So did his language. Isn't that sad? (laughs) This language created outsiders. That's just terrible. It's just horrible. So? (laughs) So? Where on earth uh, does the Bible tell us that uh, we are not to create, quote, outsiders? Um, And by the way, I want to point out an important word here. Um, It's it's the second um, sentence in the second paragraph. It says, uh, George writes, he says, I can imagine it now. Imagine. See, that's the thing is, is that um, George right here is doing theology via imagination. Yeah, it's 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 true. And unfortunately, imagination is just not uh, the important thing when it comes to doing theology. Keep in mind, theology, uh, literally, it's it's words, logos about God 
theologos. Okay, these are words about God. And in the scriptures, imagination isn't the important thing. Yeah, see, in in the scriptures, the important thing is fidelity to God's words. Why? Because God, in, in scripture, what we have is God has spoken. He has spoken. He's revealed things about himself that we couldn't have known otherwise. And so um, here George Ellerick is imagining this uh, scenario in which Abraham is having some um, alcoholic beverages with his buddies. And he says, hey, you know, God uh, chose me to be the father of many nations. And apparently those words well created outsiders. <clears throat> so from this little imaginative story that uh, has its um, origin in the imagination of George Ellerick, now George dives off into a, a, you know, a, a, an application that has to do with the church. Here's what he says. He says, our churches are drenched in conversation about things like God, truth, compassion, scriptural authority, salvation, crosses, and tombs. Although we may not intend to, we follow in the footsteps of Abraham. Which Abraham? The, the one of George's imagination. Um, our language excludes others. <gasps> Gasp. Uh, and the father, the father of many nations came with a responsibility to not discriminate, to not exclude. Uh, the Hebrew word for nations is goy. Uh, yeah, the goyim. It, it meant every nation that was present on earth at the time Abraham got his new nickname. It was a term of inclusion. Um, yes, it did say that every nation would be blessed by the seed of Abraham. It didn't say that everybody in every nation would be blessed by the seed of Abraham. Because, see, here's the deal. Technically, I mean, what does it say about Jesus? He died for the sins of the world. But, see, the the thing is is that it's not that the, the gospel itself excludes people. It's that people exclude themselves because they want to persist in their false religion. And they want to persist in their sin. And they don't want to repent. And they don't want to be forgiven. And they don't want to have anything to do with the Jesus who died for them. So Jesus and the biblical gospel and crosses and tombs and scriptural authority doesn't exclude people, George. Um, people exclude themselves by persisting in their wickedness. <clears throat> anyway, uh, you'll notice that he, apparently he's putting a high stock and value in, quote, inclusion and making sure that we don't create, you know, those other the categories of otherness. Uh, <clears throat> so George continues. To, so he says, so here's a question. Has our language created other nations that were never meant to be? It's a stupid question. Okay. The qu- uh, first of all, where in the scriptures is exclusion considered to be a sin or a bad thing? Um, let me give you an example. And I'm going to give you an example from Jesus, okay? Because Jesus, I mean, you know, that's the thing about emergence and liberals is that they, they like the red letters. They like the red letters. And so as a result of it, I think it's um, it's time that we take a look at some of Jesus's actions and see if Jesus creates other nations, if you would, or if Jesus uses words that in a sense could, you know, well, they end up excluding some people. Um, hang on a second here. Let me pull this up in my computerized Bible. 
Yeah, here it is. Matthew 22, starting at verse 23. Let me set this up for you. The Sadducees are about ready to um, test Jesus, if you would. And I want you to pay close attention to how Jesus behaves, because after all, Jesus claimed to be none other than the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. So let's see how Jesus handles the scriptures and how he handles words and see if if his words end up, well, creating another nation, if you would, and, and maybe even excluding some people. <clears throat> Matthew 22, starting at verse 23, we read, The same day the Sadducees came to Jesus, who say, and the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Uh, Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died. Now in the resurrection, therefore, uh, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For, For they all had her. Now see, here's what, the Sadducees are up to. Here's how the game works. See what we're what they're what they're basically doing is they deny the 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 resurrection. They deny the miraculous. Think of the Sadducees as as like the ancient world's version of modernist liberals. Okay, they're just too smart, too educated to actually believe in such a stupid thing as resurrection. And so as a result of it, uh, what they've done is they've come up with a hypothetical situation. You see. The resurrection can't possibly be true because then you get absurd outcomes like this, where the, the you know you know whose whose wife is this guy gonna is 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 she you know, whose wife is this woman gonna be uh, when she married she was married to seven guys here on earth? See that proves there can't possibly be a resurrection. Now here's how the game works: you basically judge scripture using philosophy or philosophical arguments. Okay, that's the game. The liberals today do the same thing. But uh, watch how Jesus answers them. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Yeah, let me, again, if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 29. Uh, This is is quite a, a statement on the part of Jesus. He says to the Sadducees, you are wrong yeah um boy um yeah um how that's kind of not nice um you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god did i mention the fact that jesus said to them you are wrong um by the way the greek word there uh plan hang on a second here let me tell you what this word means it means to, uh, to cause to go astray from a specific way to lead astray to cause or to wander to mislead or to deceive uh to proceed with a sense of uh without a proper sense of direction to go astray to be misled to wander about aimlessly these are all uh you know definitions of the word um itself uh, planao by the way is the uh, the the form found in the lexicon? So Jesus said, "You are an error. You have gone astray because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God." At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? 
Uh-oh. Jesus here is pointing the Sadducees to words. Oh, no. Hang on. And, and he's quoting them authoritatively. Listen, listen to this. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, says this about the, about the word of God. Have you not read what God said to you? God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Yeah, that, um, Wow. Uh, you see what's going on here is that Jesus is using words that, well, they they exclude. I mean, imagine how badly the Sadducees must have felt after having these very, well, exclusive words thrown in their face. And then, and then, you know, let me give you another example here. Let's talk, you know, talk about exclusion. Um, Matthew chapter 25 um, hang on a second here. I want to pull this up in the ESV. Okay, here we go. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. It says, when the son of man comes in his glory, Jesus is referring to himself there and all the angels are with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all of the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Oh, no. Oh, no. Here, Jesus is, he's separating. Can you believe it? I mean, if the liberals were right, if the emergents were right, then why is Jesus separating? He's, He's creating exclusive groups. He's not being completely inclusive. In fact, um, the the punchline of the story is found in verse 40, uh, verses um, uh, 45 and 46. And it says, and then he will say, answer them. This is the goats saying, truly, I say to you, uh, you didn't do it to the least of these. You didn't do it to me. And then he will, he's, he's to the goats. He will say, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep into eternal life. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, if George Ellerich is right, uh, you know, that, that, that somehow that, that the, the important thing is that we create this inclusion thing and we don't exclude anybody, then what is he going to, what does he make of Jesus? First of all, quoting the Bible as if it's the word of God and it's authoritative and telling the Sadducees that they're wrong and that they're badly mistaken and misled, and then talking about the day he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead, he separates people. I mean, what if don't you think that if the uh, liberals and emergents had it right regarding inclusion, uh, that somehow Jesus would never be caught dead separating or worse, calling somebody wrong and using words to do it? <clears throat> Let me go back to the piece here. Uh, so, um, so George asked a question. So here's our, has our language created other nations that were never meant to be? Abraham was a nomad. His life was a traveler. He, 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 he experienced life on the go as a continual adventure filled with many twists and turns and surprises. What if he is a metaphor for how adaptable our language is meant to be? Well, George, do you have any proof whatsoever that the life of Abraham is supposed to be a metaphor for how adaptable our language is meant to be? Can you point me to anything in Jesus' teaching? 
that clearly teaches that Abraham's life was a metaphor for how adaptable our language is meant to be. Yeah, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now, that that maybe we're supposed to offer the other words about God that they understand and grasp and can hold on to. I have no. He's been reading Samir Salmanovic. Uh, now, what about those uh, who follow after Jesus now? Has our language become a bit uh, claustrophobic and limited? Has our language become claustrophobic and limited? Well, Jesus himself used limiting and exclusive language. I, I, who am I to contradict Jesus or to do anything other than what he did? I, you see, notice what he's what he's doing. He's attacking language. He's attacking words. This is what postmodernity does. It attacks language and it attacks words and basically claims that words and language are the tools of imperial oppressors. That they are. And so therefore, we've got to free ourselves from imperial, imperial, oppressive, exclusionary language that's putting people in bondage and 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 and, and take on more and get, you know, take on more inclusive language that doesn't exclude. To which I basically say this is just piffle and poppycock. Now, some might be familiar with the metaphor. I'm sorry, I'm reading again here. Uh, of, of God as a parent, a, a father, a mother. Metaphors are descriptions of a subject that tend to be expressed through comparison. Metaphors tend to use word, the word like to make the distinction between two subjects. The problems with this comparison isn't the comparison itself, but when people absorb the metaphor as objective, when people take metaphors such as God is the father and then apply them uh, apply uh, then apply all of their own experience of their father onto God, the unintentional de- uh, denigrate and otherness of God. Even if we had a great father figure, God isn't the parent uh, is out there waiting to give you tips on a right or right, uh, right or wrong way to live life. This isn't to say that God won't ever do that, but it is to, is saying that we come to realize the frailty of language along with the limited knowledge of God we have. Mm, I see. So this is an attack against language. So in the 17th century England, the scientists of the Royal Society sought to separate knowledge of nature from the colors of rhetoric, the devices of the fancy of the uh, delightful and deceitful of fables. Uh, Thomas Spratt, 1667, the history of the Royal Society of London. Uh, For the improving of natural knowledge, they saw the trick of metaphors as distorting reality. Metaphors as a device to understand God, although well-intentioned, are woefully inadequate. What it does for us as humans is place God in a much smaller box. I see. I yeah, so if you use metaphors and language, then you're putting God in a small box. Uh, then, uh, then the one we might already have him in. When we think of God as parent, uh, yeah, see, that's the thing Jesus himself said. And when you pray, say, our Father who aren't in heaven. And, you know, he used words and language to say that. Hmm. <clears throat> we continue. Uh, when we think of God as parent, that, uh, then God either becomes loving or angry depending on whether we do wrong or right. When we see God as parent, uh, then we come to believe in a God who only gives us things if we get our chores done. You know, I disagree with that. Um, y- you know, because uh, there's another way of looking at God as parent is God is God is who's there to care for us and love us uh, no matter what. 
Yeah, see, yeah, because there's different ways that people parent. I see. But see, you have to let God, Jesus's words help flesh that out. But of course, words are you know, they just limit God and put them in a box. And so if we see God as parent, then we uh, then we're 18 and it's time to move out. And who are leaving and who are we leaving behind? So this is the last paragraph of this piece. And remember, the um, the the name of the piece is Silence as the New Theology. Here we go. Uh, here's what George Ellerick, uh, who writes for the Huffington Post, is recommending. Are you ready? <clears throat> maybe we can embrace, uh, maybe what we can embrace is silence as the new theology. Ah, wonder, curiosity. Maybe these could be new words that are intertwined with romantic, with the romantic realization that our language has limits. That we are called into creation as a reminder that God is to be experienced. Maybe we come to see that our limitations are a good thing because we can let mystery teach us rather than trying to define it. So at the very end of this, what do we got? Uh, it's the new si- uh, silence as the new theology. And, you know, um, George, uh, listen, uh, I was just at the uh, Transform uh, Missional Community Gathering, East Coast Gathering of the Emergent Church, and was there in the room when Brian McLaren was uh, speaking. And Brian McLaren actually had a, a very important quote that I thought might be applicable to you here. And since you seem to be in the same camp as Brian McLaren, I think it'd be wise that you take his advice. Brian McLaren, one of the points that he made during his keynote address, he told the emergent folks to make sure that they smoke what they're selling. Now, that's right. He's, that's what McLaren said. Make sure that you smoke what you're selling. Now, it's kind of a funny metaphor. I, I understand that. But that's okay. It's just language. And he's just using words, and those are limiting anyway. Uh, and but I think what he's the the gist of it was is that make sure if you're selling something that you are also um, somebody who uses it. For instance, you know that Sham Wow guy on the infomercials. You know, um, I think it'd be really disturbing to find out if he thought that Sham Wow was really kind of a schlocky product and he never used it. But you know, it might be more compelling. Uh, the ShamWow product might be more compelling, you know, if we all found out that the ShamWow guy, you know, has like a, a closet full of them and he uses it for everything, you know, including making enchiladas. Uh, so um, that being the case, George, I am strongly, strongly suggesting that you smoke what you're selling here. You're saying that silence is the new theology. Please practice it. Um I, in fact, what I would really like you to do is to stop using words to talk about God altogether. I mean, serious. In fact, you might even want to start practicing what I call wordless journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, no, serious. I mean, words are limiting. And so since you write for the Huffington Post and you write about theology, I would like you to stop using words to talk about God altogether and I want you to stop using words in your journalism. You need to practice wordless journalism. Now, this is a higher form of journalism. It's it's a journalism beyond journalism. In fact, it's a journalism that has deeper and more mysterious and uh, and want mysterious wonder to it. And so, wordless journalism. In fact, I suggest that you dedicate an entire blog um, to wordless journalism and, uh, write op-ed pieces without words. I mean, serious, I stop, no words whatsoever, because then you can get to the romantic realization that, well, you know, our language has limits. And, um, and so the idea here is, is that, that when you practice wordless journalism, then I can sit here in awe and wonder and curiosity and embrace the mystery of your wordless journalism and your silent theology. So, 
since this is your solution, you want to practice silence as the new the silence as the new theology. I you need to you need to pave the way. So I, stop writing words about God immediately. In fact, you might even want to take this blog post down because you know it uses words to talk about God. And so, you know, personally, I I just uh, I don't buy it. I'm not into silent theology or wordless journalism. So I'm going to continue to use words to talk about God and understand that words mean things and that the the the, the language constructs, although they're limiting, they. You know, that, that they do convey meaning. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'm going to go ahead and keep going that way, but I want you to smoke what you're selling, and I want you to practice silent theology. No words. No words about God. Stop using them altogether. And I want you to practice wordless journalism. I'm telling you, I, I'll sit here in awe and wonder as I ponder your wordless um, journalism. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you can do so. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's uh, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. 
Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support.
warning, if you want to practice uh, silent theology, please get on with it. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the word, uh, world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, or you can, well, when you get there, you can, you'll can you see two buttons, one that says uh, join our crew, uh, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a fine way to do it, and when we get to our goal of a 1,000 listeners, well, that means that we will be able to pay all of our bills on a monthly basis, and that's kind of super mucho importante. Uh, because if we can't pay our bills, then we can't continue to operate. Just kind of one of those things. It kind of goes that way. Anyway, if you'd like to uh, contribute the amount of your choosing, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. Uh, looking at time here, boy, did I run long on that on that one piece. Uh, let's see here. Uh, we're going to talk about Patricia King today, and I'm going to save the uh, uh, Mindy Caliguire Callag- uh, from Soul Care. Uh, she's teaching at Willow Creek uh, uh, on their video series. Uh, we're going to save that till tomorrow. So, um, if we're going to talk about um, Patricia King, that means well, we've got to play our Patricia King music here. Ah, yes. Folks, are you looking for a great place to do your staycation this year? Have you considered making a visit to heaven? Yes, you can visit heaven now, according to Patricia King. You think I'm joking? (laughs) If you think I'm joking, then you haven't listened to Fighting for the Faith for very long. Uh, so without any further ad- ado, uh, here is um, Patricia King uh, teaching us about, um, well, I'll, I'll let her explain, visits to heaven. Hi, Patricia King here. I want to share a little bit today on the subject of heaven. You know, in the Bible, it is not unusual to find passages where where individuals who believed in God had insight, revelation, and even um, visions and encounters in heaven. For example, Isaiah... Now, just so you know, she's right to a degree. Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, you think of Ezekiel. um, There's several instances in Scripture of people who've had, well, uh, even the Apostle John, uh, well, they've been in the presence of God in heaven. It's it's not um, unheard of. However, it's very rare when you think about it. Let's continue. In Isaiah 6, it says that he was in the throne room, that he saw the things in the throne room, even had experience in the throne room where the seraphim, the angels, the fiery ones came and did a purging work in him and where he received a commissioning to a whole new level of prophetic anointing out of that um, journey into, into that heavenly dimension. 
We also see uh, Paul. He said that he was caught up into the third heaven. And John in Revelation 4, where he heard the voice that said, come up here and I'll show you things to come. And so he obviously did go up there because he was he had things revealed to him in the heavenly places. So it's not unusual. We see even Moses and the 70 elders of Israel in the book of Exodus, how they went up into the heavenly places and ate and drank with God on sapphire streets. Wow. And these things are happening today. It says in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9 and 10, how Jesus made a way for us through his blood to enter into the holiest of all. See, this is, see, they, they, it happened to them and it's happening today. Because when we read Hebrews 9 and 10 out of context and don't pay any attention to what it's really saying, we can make the claim that, see, Jesus made the way for us to, you know, visit heaven. She teaches us all in her glory school, I'm sure, for a price. Which is said in the scripture is heaven itself and that we can access that place by faith. In our glory school, we uh, go into detail and unpack the scriptures as to how we, as a new creation in Christ, can access these places by faith and enjoy encounter with God. I believe that many of you that are watching this clip right now are going to have encounters in the heavenly places. Some of you have been believing for that. Some of you have been crying out for it and saying, oh God, if only I could have a glimpse into the heavenly places. Well, one of the places where you can find a glimpse is in the scripture. Why don't you go through the scripture and study out what the throne room is like and what the heavenly places are like. In our glory school, we have one lesson. It's called mapping out the throne zone. It's spiritual mapping in a different way than what most people talk about it in. But it's looking at all the scriptures in the Bible about the throne room and 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 seeing what god has to say about it what kind of activities take place there so you can have encounter in the word as it shows you what heaven is like but also the spirit of god the holy spirit can lead you into revelation of the heavenlies serious i mean serious Do I do I need to refute this? I mean, or is this just patently false on its face? And you're sitting there going, "I can't believe what I'm hearing." I hope that's the second. We have friends who actually um, have been raised from the dead. Uh, R- really, they've been raised from the dead. Uh, they died and had encounters in heaven and were sent back. And um, their testimonies are actually on xpmedia.com. You can look at some of them. In fact, one of them is Mickey Robinson's testimony and Bob Jones and others. And there's also others who didn't actually have a resurrection, but they have definitely been there and seen things and, and encountered the heavenly dimension. I remember when I first met Bob Jones, I had been taken up into a heavenly encounter back in 1994, and it was a sovereign encounter by the Lord. And I wanted to have more after I had that one. I wanted to have more, but I I didn't have any more. So years later, when I met Bob Jones, I knew that he often had encounters in the heavenly places. And I said, oh, how do you do that? I'd like to get to know God in a better way and in that place. And he said, yeah, I I have my raptures every single day. Hmm. <laughs> I uh, <clears throat> I'm very tempted to just pound my head against the desk at the moment. Okay, this is rather entertaining. Oh, continue. 
uh, Patricia, please tell us more. I have encounters in heaven every single day. I said, what? You're going to heaven every single day? I mean, does he commute? I mean, does he take an airplane? I I said, I would love to do that. Give me some keys on how to do it. And he said, well, doesn't the Bible say that you're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ? I said, yeah. And he says, well, then, do you believe that? He says, you can access that place through the power of the truth that is in the word of God. Now, I don't have time to unpack that all to you in this clip, but I'd like to provoke you to hunger, to search out the matter. Serious? Uh, it just, um, so, see, you know, if you go to our glory school, um, um, you too can learn how to, um, you know, you, you make this summer staycation a, a meaningful one. You can actually... Um, go to heaven. Okay. To get the glory school, if you don't already have it, you can get it on MP3s or download it from our store into your computer or get the CDs or DVDs. But it's a, a great course to take. They'll take you step by step on proper foundations. Yeah, see, because this is actually, I mean, if you have this knowledge, you can apply it and then poof, you know, you can shoot up to heaven whenever you want. Into third heaven encounters or encounters with holy spirit and how to walk with holy spirit in the supernatural dimension it covers all of that how to enjoy angelic visitation how to enjoy angelic uh, visitation oh boy this is just crazy i just but anyway i like to fly a whole lot and flying over here like i said was was fun. The only aspect of flying that I don't like is when you have to leave somebody that you care for a great deal and leave home and go out on the road. And I wrote a song about that. This was about about six years ago, I guess. And I'd like to do it for you. It's called Leaving on a Jet Plane. All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go I'm standing here outside the door I hate to wake you up to say goodbye But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn The taxi's waiting, he's blown his horn Already I'm so lonesome I could die Oh, man. Wow. Apparently living on a jet angel. It's all about living in the realm of the supernatural. But I feel so strong in my spirit that Jesus is opening up portals of revelation to his people to enable you to walk in more 
of that dimension. He wants you to. And where does it say that in his scriptures, um, uh, Patricia? Otherwise, why would he tell you to pray in this way? Your kingdom come, your will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. That's right. He wants you to live in. You see, that means that he wants you to experience the third heaven here on earth. Heavenly dimension while you're still in the earth. He wouldn't tell you to pray that if you couldn't do it. Oh, good night. Talk about reading into what God's word says. This is just a train wreck. You can do it and you will do it. I'm going to pray for you right now. Uh, no, um, I'll, I'll pass on that one. Thanks for offering, though. Uh, but no, I, I can do without you praying for me. I don't want to uh, have that happen. All right. Uh, so uh, there you have it, folks. I mean, so if you're looking for an inexpensive, it does cost money because you have to go to the Glory School. You have to get the Glory School DVDs. But if you're looking for an inexpensive place to a staycation this year uh, due to the bad economy, well, heaven's just, the third heaven might be the place. I, I'm sure that it's far more interesting than Tahiti. And uh, maybe even, you know, less crummy than the Bahamas. So, I mean, who needs Club Med in Atlantis and, you know, places like that and and cruise ships? I mean, you this is practical stuff here. You can have a staycation uh, right there in the third heaven. You just need to, you know, because that's what Jesus meant when he said, you know, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that means Jesus's will is that you... um have staycations and and, uh, and that you you know and you know spend your keep your cash in your wallet for the most part and you know vacation in heaven. Man, wow, um, wow. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we've got a good sermon, the good lecture that we're going to be reviewing from Ligon Duncan from the Together for the Gospel uh, conference from this year, entitled "Did the Fathers Know the Gospel?" This is a uh, a lecture on patristics, one of my favorite subjects, and uh, Ligon does a fantastic job, worth passing along. So you definitely don't want to miss that. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian 
Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. be doing a good lecture here from Ligon Duncan, doing a little patristics work. One of my favorite subjects. Gonna cue up the uh, music here. Hang on a second here. Gotta dust this off. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service although today's lecture is not a sermon it is worth listening to and passing along why well the question at hand is did the fathers that would be the church fathers did they know the gospel you know the one we preach christ and him crucified for our sins do they believe in substitution, penal substitution? The vicarious death of Christ on the cross? Pierced for our transgressions? Bruised for our iniquities? Or was, is that just an artifact of modernity? 
you know, has the church really just screwed up and completely missed the boat? An important question. Why? Well, because the emergence claim that, well, these wascally platonic philosophers have overlaid their platonic philosophy over the Bible, and as a result of it, we don't have biblical Christianity. We do not have the true gospel. We have messed up. We are not proclaiming what... Well, you get what I'm saying. So without any further ado, let's just let Ligon Duncan answer the question. Did the fathers know the gospel? That's the question at hand. And uh, so here is Ligon Duncan from the Together for the Gospel Conference. And uh, I don't, I'll chime in as necessary, but uh, here we go. Thank you, Mark. It's a privilege to be before you again today. Uh, let me say right off the bat, uh, we have so much to cover in the short time that we have that I won't be able to cover it all. So I want to already point you to a couple of resources. If you will Google patristics for busy pastors, uh, you will find an audio interview uh, that I did uh, with Tony Ranke of the Sovereign Grace Ministries, and it has tons of resources on pastors making use of the rich resources that are available to us in the church fathers, and I commend that to you. I'm also going to give you some uh, pointers on bibliography at the end of the talk. Let me secondly say, I've had a bunch of people ask for the reference on the Augustine quote uh, that I used the other day in introducing Al Mohler, and I want to give that to you. You will find it in the Confessions, Book 4, 10, 13. If you know the breakdown of the Confessions, there's a book and then there's a larger chapter, and then there are shorter sections, 4, 10, 13. Um, you will also find that quote in Peter Brown's biography of Augustine, the best biography of Augustine in the English language written in the last hundred years is Peter Brown's Augustine of Hippo. And you will find that quote in the sixth chapter, which is entitled, Friends. So those by way of resources for your edification. Let me also say that after hearing the message last night, I simultaneously wanted so badly to be able to get up and preach this morning. And at the same time, was so glad that I didn't have to. Uh, the, the message was just terrific. So I, I begin by saying that this address is not as important as the one that you heard last night. Because I'm going to be giving you an address on church history. I'm not going to be expounding the Word of God. And the Word of God is our only final infallible rule for faith and practice. We're going to be reading the book of Providence today. And reading the book of Providence today, as God unfolds His plan in history, is not our final authority. We even read Providence under the authority of Scripture. That having been said, I do not believe that we are wasting your time by addressing this particular subject because many brothers have had their faith in what the scriptures teach unsettled by their encounter with the early church fathers. 
and some guidance for us, some help there, is a good thing. On September the 3rd, 1992, I was um, awakened by a phone call from my youngest brother, Mel, saying that my father had died in the middle of the night. Because it was early in the morning in Jackson, it took us a while before I could arrange a flight to fly back to Greenville. And the earliest flight that I could get left Jackson after lunch. I was already scheduled to teach a class on the history of philosophy and Christian thought at Reformed Theological Seminary. And I decided, I think I'll just go on in and teach that class before I go out to the airport and catch the plane. It so happened that the class that morning was going to be on the subject of historiography. And as I stood up before the class, I had these two realities in my mind. My father has just died, and I'm getting ready to teach a class on historiography. And so I said to the students, what possible justification could there be for looking at a subject like historiography, how we read and study history and how history has been written and what we learn from the philosophies of those who write history? How, how could you possibly study historiography in a moment the death of a believer, even your own father. And there are a lot of answers to that question, but one is when we study church history, we are studying the history of God's providence with our people. These are our people. These are our forebears. These are people who rested and trusted in Jesus Christ, many of whom died because they loved him. And if we do not pay attention to the story of God's dealings with them, uh, we are not paying attention to the story of our own people. Furthermore, we miss great edification when we do not attend to the lessons that are to be learned from the story of God's dealings with his church. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's famous introduction to Athanasius's book on the Incarnation. Now you understand that Athanasius is one of those people who taught us that what you believe about the person of Christ is absolutely essential to the work of Christ. That Christology is absolutely essential to soteriology. And if you demean what the Bible says about who Christ is, you rob his capacity to do what the Bible says he had to do in order for you and me to be saved. And, and C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to the modern English translation of Athanasius's classic work on the incarnation. And he gave an apology, an argument, a defense of our reading the old classic works, even from the patristic period, like Athanasius on the Incarnation. And it's such a classic that it's been reprinted in many places. And let me just share a little snippet of, you, so, of it so you can hear Lewis's argument. There is a strange idea abroad that in every subject, the ancient books should be read only by the professionals and that the amateur should content himself with modern books. Thus, I've also often found as a tutor in English language that if the average person wants to find something about Platonism, the very last thing he thinks of doing is taking a translation of Plato off the library shelf and reading the symposium. 
He would rather read some dreary modern book ten times as long, all about isms and influences and only once in every 12 pages telling him what Plato actually said. The error is a rather amiable one, for it springs from humility. The student is half afraid to meet one of the great philosophers face to face. He feels himself inadequate and thinks he will not understand him. But if he only knew the great man, precisely because of his greatness, is much more intelligible than his modern commentators. The simplest student will be able to understand, if not all, yet a very great deal of what Plato said. But hardly anyone can understand some modern books on Platonism. It has always, therefore, been one of my main endeavors as a teacher to persuade the young that first-hand knowledge is not only more worth acquiring than second-hand knowledge, it is usually much easier and more delightful to, to acquire. Now, this mistaken preference for the modern books and this shyness of the old ones is nowhere more rampant than in theology. Now, this seems to me topsy-turvy. Naturally, since I myself am a writer, I do not wish the ordinary reader to read no modern books. But if he must read only the new or only the old, I would advise him to read the old. And I would give him this advice precisely because he is an amateur and therefore must much less protected than the expert against the dangers of an exclusively contemporary diet. A new book is still on its trial and the amateur is not in a position to judge it. It has to be tested against the great body of Christian thought down through the ages and all its hidden implications, often unsuspected even by the author himself, have to be brought to light. Often it cannot be fully understood without the knowledge of a good many other modern books. If you join at 11 o'clock, a conversation which began at 8 o'clock, you will often not see the real bearing of what is being said. Remarks which seem to you very ordinary will produce laughter or irritation and you will not see why. The reason, of course, being that earlier stages of the conversation have given them a special point. In the same way, sentences in a modern book which look quite ordinary may be directed at some other book. And in this way, you may be led to accept what you would have indignantly rejected if you had known its real significance. The only safety is to have a standard of plain central Christianity, mere Christianity as Baxter calls it, which puts the controversies of the moment in their proper perspective. Such a standard can be acquired only from the old books. It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one until you have read an old one in between. And if that is too much for you, you should at least read one old one to every three new ones. Every age has its own outlook. It is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. All contemporary writers share to some extent the contemporary outlook, even those who, like myself, seem most opposed to it. 
Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of past ages than the fact that both sides were usually assuming without question a good deal which we should now absolutely deny. They thought that they were as completely opposed as two sides could be. But in fact, they were at all the time secretly united. United with each other and against earlier and later ages by a mass of common assumptions. We may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century, the blindness about which our posterity will ask, how could they have thought that, lies where we have never suspected it. And concerns something about which there is an untroubled agreement between Hitler and President Roosevelt or between H.G. Wells and Karl Barth. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths which we half knew already. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors which we are committing. And their own errors being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past. But unfortunately, we cannot get at them. So for all these reasons, it is well worthwhile that we give attention to the church fathers. But evangelicals in general do not know patristics. Patristics is one of the words used to indicate the study of the early church fathers. Typically, the patristic era is uh, said to cover about the first eight centuries of the church's history. But today, I'm going to confine myself to the earliest church history prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325 because of our particular concern today so that you will see what the earliest church fathers uh, say and emphasize. So my focus is going to be on pre-Nicene theology. Another term that you will find for patristics is patrology, the study of the fathers. That's the Latinate form. Patristics is the Greek form. Now, Roman Catholics... Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, and Restorationists, that is, those who believe in a, a repristinization of primitive Christianity, that we should go back to the golden age of the very earliest post-New Testament church for the revival of Christianity in our own time, all give great attention to the church fathers in their writing and their theology. But Protestants, conservative evangelical Protestants in particular, have rarely given the attention to the study of patristics uh, that 
is comparably found in these other traditions. Now, this is not historically the case. The 16th century fathers of the Reformation, the magisterial reformers, were masters in the study of the church fathers, from Luther to Calvin to Bootser and on. They knew the church fathers. But when we study the fathers today, we tend to find two views of the early church fathers. One view of the church fathers says that the fathers' teaching shows us that the reformers' theology of grace was wrong. One reading of the church fathers says that If you read the church fathers carefully, it will show you that the reformers' theology of grace was wrong. That the reformers were wrong in how they formulated the gospel. They were wrong in how they formulated justification by faith, atonement, imputation, and these things that we've been talking about in these last hours together. The argument is that the church fathers were the closest Christians to Jesus and the New Testament. And so their understanding of Christianity and of the New Testament must be determinative and even authoritative for our understanding of the New Testament. And when we read them, they do not agree with the Protestant interpretation of the gospel and of justification. That's one view that you will find amongst those who study the church fathers. Another view, however, the opposite view is this, that the gospel itself was lost from the time of the end of the New Testament to the 16th century and that it was rediscovered for the first time by the magisterial reformers, Luther and following that the New Testament's theology of grace was lost as early as the apostolic fathers and did not reappear until the day of the magisterial reformation. Neither of those readings of the fathers is accurate, sufficient, or helpful. How should we read the fathers instead? We should read the fathers respectfully, but carefully under the authority of Scripture. Hughes Old. Got to pause right there. He's making a great point, and I couldn't agree stronger. Okay. You read them historically, and you read them under the authority of Scripture. Remember, test everything, including the church fathers. So the patristics help us out, but even the fathers have to be judged according to the clear teachings of the Word of God. Let's continue. In his amazing volume on worship, Reformed According to Scripture, says this sentence about worship and the tradition of the church on worship and the Bible. In the last analysis... We are not as much concerned with what tradition tells us about worship as with what tradition tells us about what Scripture has to say about worship. 
What's old saying? Old is charting out for you a proper biblical attitude towards tradition. Our greatest concern in studying the church fathers is not to read what they said about a particular doctrine and then decide that what they said about that particular doctrine is authoritative, infallible, and true. But to learn what they said about a particular doctrine in order to know how they read the scriptures. The scriptures are our final authority. And they help test our reading of scripture. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. But they help us, whether they're right or wrong, to read the Bible better. And to sit under its authority better. And that's how we need to read the church fathers. We don't go back and say, what did they say about this doctrine? And whatever they said about this doctrine must be infallibly true. No, we say, what did they say about this doctrine? Because what they say about this doctrine will help me see if I am completely out to lunch as to how I'm reading the Bible. They may be wrong and I may be right. I may be wrong and they may be right. But I'll read the scriptures in conversation with these expositors, these early expositors of God's word. So we read the fathers respectfully, but carefully under the authority of scripture. This is exactly what the magisterial reformers in the days of the Reformation did. Here's what Bruce Gordon says about Calvin's reading of the church fathers. You need to understand that Calvin was an incredible patristic scholar. In 1536, when he was 27 years old, he went along to a disputation between Protestants and Roman Catholics in Lausanne. And during that disputation, the Protestant representatives were faring badly against their Roman Catholic opponents in the area of the church fathers. And the Roman Catholic representative was citing the church fathers against the views of the reformers. And the representatives of the Protestant side were not coming back with the rebuttals. And here was young John Calvin. You understand he's only been a Christian for a few years now. His first edition of the Institutes is just coming out. It's a small book at this time. But he knows the fathers. And he rises to his feet and begins to cite from memory almost perfectly verbatim from numerous church fathers in rebuttal to his Roman Catholic opponents. And everyone knew right then this will be a brother to be contended with in the days ahead. So Calvin knew the church fathers, but here's his approach. Bruce Gordon says, the model set up by Calvin in his dedication of a conversation between the reformers extended to his treatment of the church fathers who were central to his attempt to understand Paul's writings. Hence, the tradition of the fathers must be examined and it is a mark of prudent discretion to observe what they contain and whence they proceed. If we discover that they have no other tendency than to the pure worship God of God, we may embrace them. But if they draw us away from the pure and simple worship of God, if they infect true and sincere religion by their own mixtures, we must utterly reject them. 
Gordon goes on to say, Calvin believed that the church fathers were humans. They disagreed with one another and could get it wrong. Indeed, Calvin felt no compunction about rejecting their views. In the biblical commentaries, Augustine and Chrysostom not infrequently are declared to be dead wrong by Calvin. Nevertheless, for Calvin, as for the other Protestant reformers, the church fathers were so highly regarded that they were constantly quoted and referenced. In his writings, he rarely named any contemporary authors, even those from whom he borrowed heavily, such as Bootser and Melanchthon. Likewise, the medieval scholastics, although certainly present in his arguments, almost never appear by name. Early modern authors, including Calvin, did not footnote sources. They felt no obligations to state from where they took their arguments or against whom they were speaking. Contemporary writers did not merit such attention. And besides, the learned public reading the text would usually be able to identify those sources. But with the church fathers, it was an entirely different matter. They were both named and quoted as a mark of respect. Calvin's use of the church fathers was grounded in the firm belief that the consensus of their views supported his theology. He did not, however, simply trawl through their works, seeking evidence for his own position. He read them carefully and widely and was guided by their views. They were, as in his words, witnesses from a primitive and pure church. Though everything they said had to be subjected to the rule of Scripture. Now here's how Calvin himself puts this in the Institutes. Speaking of his dialogue with the Roman Catholics. They unjustly set the fathers, the ancient fathers, against us. I mean the ancient writers of a better age of the church. As if in them... They had supporters for their own impiety. If the contest were to be determined by patristic authority, the tide of victory, to put it very modestly, would turn to our side. Now, these fathers have written many wise and excellent things. Still, what commonly happens to men has befallen them too, in some instances. For these so-called pious children of theirs, with all their sharpness of wit and judgment and spirit, worship only the faults and errors of the fathers. The good things of these fathers, that, that these fathers have written, they either do not notice or misrepresent or pervert. You might say that their only care is to gather dung amid gold. Then, with a frightful to-do, they overwhelm us as despisers and adversaries of the fathers. But we do not despise them. In fact, if it were to our present purpose, I could with no trouble at all prove that the greater part of what we are saying today meets with the father's approval. Yet we are so versed in their writings as to remember that always... All things are ours to serve us, not to lord it over us, and that we all belong to the one Christ whom we must obey in all things without exception. He who does not observe this distinction will have nothing certain in religion, inasmuch as these holy men were ignorant of many things, often disagreed among themselves, and sometimes even contradicted themselves." 
Now, interestingly, that is precisely what the contemporary Roman Catholic patristic scholar Philorama says. Here's what he says about the fathers. Now, he's directly addressing eschatology here, but listen to what he says about the eschatology of the early church fathers. The father's formulation was a complex process of continuity and change over a long period of time, and the thought of any one father shows oscillations. So, for instance, if you're reading Irenaeus, and you're reading him on the the millennial issue. Irenaeus is often cited as one of the proponents of chiliasm or millenarianism in the early church. But here's the problem. In the first three books of his great work against heresies, he looks like what we would call today an amillennialist. It's only in the final two books that he sounds like a Chiliast. And Charles Hill, great New Testament and patristic scholar, has argued that Irenaeus' views changed as he was writing against heresies. And that the change in his views was designed to help him address the Gnostic controversy. So if you say that the fathers are authoritative, here's your problem. The, the fathers contradict one another, and the fathers sometimes contradict themselves. So the Protestant, the Reformed, the conservative evangelical Protestant way of reading the fathers is not only more faithful to that reality that you find when reading the the fathers, it is also consistent with two or three things that we should never forget. First of all, the doctrine of total depravity. We are all prone to getting it wrong. There's only one infallible rule for faith and practice. Secondly, this way of reading the church fathers is more consistent with the New Testament. Both Jesus and Paul say what? Where will error come from in the church? From outside? No. The error comes from when? From within us. Wolves will come. And so a reading of the church fathers that recognizes that they sometimes get it wrong is more consistent with what Jesus and Paul in the New Testament tell us to expect. Furthermore, it allows us to go to the church fathers and not try and press them into our preconceived mode. That they were Tridentine Roman Catholics 1,500 years before Tridentine Roman Catholicism existed. Or that they were in lockstep with Luther and Calvin at every point 1,500 years before Luther and Calvin were born. So we should read the fathers respectfully but carefully under the authority of Scripture. We should also bear this in mind. The fathers were best in polemics. We we do not like polemics today, or we don't like it for very long. It feels too negative for us. When, When godly men start criticizing other Christians, after just a short period of time, we get the heebie-jeebies. And there's, there's a whole psychology behind that that is unique to this generation. But, but listen to this, my friends. When you read the fathers 
in areas that were not disputed, contested matters of church doctrine in their own time, let me give you this word of advice, watch out. Because they're all over the map. But when you read the fathers in any area which was a matter of dispute and debate in the church of their time, they almost always get it right and gloriously so. And so heresy served the church to get the Bible's proper understanding rightly articulated to the people of God in the church fathers. You find this repeatedly. So the church fathers will serve you best in the areas where the truth of the scripture is under assault in their own time and where it is not under assault, you better watch out. Because sometimes they will assume the gospel. Sometimes they will muddle the truth. And they will contradict one another. But put them in a fight and they'll almost always get it right. Furthermore, in reading the church fathers, you have to remember the pressure of their own age on them. The church fathers, and I'm speaking especially the earliest church fathers, think of the first four or five centuries of the church, lived in a time when Stoic and Manichaean and other types of determinism were dominant in the philosophical world of the day. In other words, there was an impersonal fatalism that was dominating large swaths of philosophy in their own time. And in reaction to that fatalism, that impersonal determinism, what do you think they stressed? Free will. Now they mean absolutely nothing like what Arminius will mean 16 centuries later. Or even what high medieval Roman Catholicism will mean. And they are rightly reacting against something that is unbiblical because determinism is unbiblical. Fatalism is unbiblical. But they do so in reaction to their context in a way that compromises very often their clear expounding of the sovereignty of God in his purposes of grace. Now what they're reacting against needs to be reacted against, but they've allowed the culture to dominate their response to the culture rather than the scripture to dominate their response to the culture in those areas. There's a lesson for us there, isn't there? We don't just react to our culture. We work out of Scripture in response to our culture. If you simply react to the culture by embracing it or rejecting it, guess what? The culture is setting the terms of the discussion. But if you respond to the culture by saying, I'm going to the Word of God, and the Word of God is going to give me my marching orders... And that means I may say to the culture, yes, or I may say no, or I may say yes and no, or I may say maybe, but whatever I say, it's the scripture that gives me my marching orders as I respond to the culture. 
not the culture. You know, you're, you, you know, some people don't like their parents' authority, and so they do the opposite of whatever their parents tell them to do. Guess who's controlling them? Their parents. Because whether you do everything they do or nothing that they want you to do, they're controlling you. So we don't react to the culture that way. Scripture is Lord over our consciences, not the culture. And the, and the fathers give us some hard lessons from that area. So that's how we should read the fathers, respectfully but carefully and under the authority of scriptures. How do the fathers and how does the study of the fathers help us? Well, the fathers and the study of the fathers really help us. And let me just rifle through a few areas where they help us. First, they help us in the status of the Old Testament. Do you realize that Christians for a hundred years after the days of the apostles continued to work fundamentally out of the Hebrew scriptures as they preached the gospel? Because the New Testament scriptures had not been widely circulated in the form of the collection that we have now. You just don't understand the privilege that we have in holding this book all together. You, real, you realize it was 16 centuries before many people like you and me could hold this book together like this. And even then you had to go to the church to hold one of these. And it was chained to a pillar. And so... The Bible of the earliest Christianity was the Hebrew Bible. Now, now, did that keep them from preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? No. T turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. Verse 15, look at what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Stop there. What sacred writings? The New Testament doesn't exist yet pulled together as a canon as we have it now. What's he talking about? The Hebrew Bible. Timothy, from childhood, you've known the Hebrew Bible, which is able to what? Give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Your Hebrew Bible can teach you salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul is saying. Your Old Testament. Can, can give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. And Timothy, you've known it since you were a boy sitting on your mother's knee and your grandmother's knee. Now, in the early days of the church, there grew up people called the Gnostics. And Gnosticism was a dizzying variety of theological viewpoints. That Gnosticism is not just one thing, just like Hinduism is not one thing. There are gazillions of Hinduisms. And there were gazillions of Gnosticisms.
But one thing that Gnostics and Marcionites largely shared in common was a rejection of the Old Testament. Marcion, in order to try and expunge the Old Testament from Christianity, got rid of Matthew, Mark, John, parts of the Pauline epistles, edited them all, wrote introductions, and then took scissors to the Gospel of Luke and tried to get out every reference to Judaism. Now in that context, with people being influenced by that kind of teaching, how do you argue for the divine authority of Holy Scripture in the Old Testament? Well, uh, you pull out Packer. Packer hadn't been born yet. What do you do? Well, in earliest Christianity, as Christians argued in the context of Judaism for the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, they had used collections of Old Testament texts applied to Jesus Christ in order to show that Jesus was the Messiah promised and predicted by the writings of the Old Testament. And these collections were called the Demonstratia Evangelica, the, the proofs of the gospel. And so church fathers like Irenaeus and Tertullian said, look, if someone is saying that the God of the Old Testament is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that the writings of the Old Testament are not the writings that come from prophets inspired by the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ, then why do we find those passages appealed to as proof of who Jesus is? In other words, they turned the old argument that had been used in the context of Jewish evangelism around. It's not just the Old Testament proves that Jesus is the Messiah. It's that the appeal to the Old Testament by Jesus that he is the Messiah and by his apostles that he is the Messiah proves that the Old Testament is inspired by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his spirit. They turn the argument around and the fathers gloriously make that case, convincingly make that case in the first century of the church's life after the days of the apostles. The the, the fathers help us in the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. If you, if you are having a debate with somebody that denies the inspiration, authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture, the fathers are your friends. You stand with them against every skeptic that has ever lived. But they also help you in the area of the canon. You know, I, I find that evangelicals are most unsettled when they begin to study the history of the canon of scripture, the authoritative books of the Bible. And it will be argued that the church created the Bible, that the church created the canon, that the church determined what was scripture and what was not. This is a famous Catholic argument against Protestantism. The church created the Bible and therefore the church is authoritative in how the Bible is to be understood. Well, you see, not only does that contradict Scripture, because in Scripture, the Word of God 
always creates the people of God. The people of God never create the word of God. The people of God are created in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. You remember Thabiti telling us yesterday the first Jew is a Gentile? It's worse than that. The first Hebrew was an Iraqi. Abraham was a pagan idolater from Iraq. But the word of God made him the people of God. Did the word of God, was the word of God created by Abraham? No, the word of God created Abraham as a part of the people of faith. And if you study the scriptures, that goes all the way through it. So then when you get to the issue of the canon, you say, but boy, doesn't it seem arbitrary that the church is determining what books are in, what books are out? Church didn't determine that. The church recognized what was the true word of God on two grounds. The marks of apostolicity and inspiration. That is, the church asked, was this written by an apostle appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ or someone in his circle? Does it have the mark of apostolicity? And two, does this book bear the marks of inspiration? In other words, does this book comport with the truth taught in our Hebrew Bible? See, the church always had a canon, the Hebrew Bible. The question was, what books were going to be recognized as authoritative New Covenant revelation? And the mark of inspiration was the mark. Well, that may still sound uh, arbitrary to you, but here's how simple it is. What were the great competitors with the truly inspired scriptures of the New Testament in the early days of post-apostolic Christianity? Gnostic writings. And what did all the Gnostics deny? the goodness of creation and they denied that the true God had created material things. And so the fathers looked at a book and they said, now, how does this book square up against the first verse in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if the book denied the goodness of material creation, it could not be inspired because it was in contradiction of the very first verse of the Bible. They didn't determine the canon. They didn't create the canon. They recognized what was inspired scripture according to the qualities of scripture itself. The church fathers help us even in the issue of the dating of the canon. Did you know this? Um, in the 19th century, it was very common for liberal scholars to argue that large portions of the New Testament were not written until years and years and years after the apostolic age, sometimes way into the late second century. And a great scholar named J.B. Lightfoot came along and he said, how can, how can we address the issue of when the New Testament writings were completed? And he said, we, what we need to find is we need to find some fixed point in history that we can date definitively. And then we need to see if the writings of the New Testament are being quoted authoritatively at that date. And then we'll know that the New Testament writings came before that time. Where would we find these? The apostolic fathers. 
all written from about 95, A.D. 95, to about A.D. 115. So whatever they're quoting has to come before then. And what's before then? It's the days of the apostles because John lives till, what, maybe 90 or so? And so Lightfoot goes through the apostolic fathers and sees them citing the New Testament as authoritative and said, I've just found it. Here's the terminus. The New Testament is before that. So that today you can even get liberal scholars. In the 1960s, Robinson, the very famous liberal scholar, would argue that all the New Testament had been written prior to AD 70. But it was because of the study of the fathers that that conclusion came about. Or what about the issue of the incarnation? In the popular Dan Brown version of the history of early Christianity, the early church believed that Jesus was human and invented the idea of his divinity at the Council of Nicaea in 325. So the earliest church believed that Jesus was a man and he only was given the status of deity 300 years after his death by a council that had been led by accretion after accretion after accretion in the development, evolutionary development of Christianity. Now the problem is all of the primary resources say it's exactly opposite. The early church, all of them, even the Gnostics had no problem with the idea of the deity of Christ. You have to wait almost three centuries before somebody has the chutzpah to deny the deity of Christ. And when he does, he is so roundly crushed by Athanasius and the Nicaeans that it's 1,500 years before anybody has the guts to raise that question again at Christianity. What did the early church struggle with? The humanity of Christ. They, had, they knew he was the Son of God, but was he really flesh and blood like me? And even our Muslim friends are confused in this area. So many people in the early church were docetic. They said Jesus appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really fully human. And this teaching undermines the gospel. Because if he did not die in our flesh and blood and was not raised in our flesh and blood, we are without hope. Now, the, the church fathers manfully resisted this kind of false teaching. And I can think of no better example than Tertullian. Tertullian, in response to this kind of denial of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, says this. Your answer is now required, Marcion, murderer of the truth. Was God truly crucified? Did he not as truly crucified died? Was he not truly raised again, seeing of course he truly died? Was it by fraud that Paul determined to know nothing among us save Jesus crucified? Was it by fraud that he represented him as buried? By fraud that he insisted that he was raised up again? Fraudulent in that case is also our faith. And the whole of what we hope for from Christ will be a phantasm. You utter scoundrel who pronounce innocent the assassins of God. For of them Christ suffered nothing 
if he in reality suffered nothing. Spare the one and only hope of the whole world, Marcion. Why tear down the indispensable dishonor of the faith? Whatever is beneath God's dignity is for my advantage. I am saved if I am not ashamed of my Lord. Whoever is ashamed of me, he says, of him I will also be ashamed. I find no other grounds for shame, such as may prove that in contempt of dishonor I am nobly shameless and advantageously a fool. The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed because it is shameful. The Son of God died. It is immediately credible because it is absurd. He was buried and rose again. It is certain because it is impossible. How can these acts be true of him if he himself was not true? If he had not truly in himself that which could be crucified and which could die and which could be buried and could be raised up again. The flesh, in fact, suffused with blood and scaffolded with bones and flesh and sinews and intertwined with veins and competent to be born and to die, human unquestionably, born of a human mother. And Christ, in Christ, this flesh will be mortal precisely because Christ is man and son of man, else why call him that? The way the fathers got at issues like this, put them in a fight, and they got it right. Look, I can't, I can't do the rest. I've got to get to do the fathers know the gospel. That's my job. That's where I've got to get. But look, if, if, you, pick up, if you pick up a copy of the Apostolic Fathers and you read the epistle of Diognetus, D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S, you will find an exposition of the understanding of Paul like the exposition that you heard last night. This is in the early second century of the church. The fathers help help us against modern problems like liberalism. They even help us in a gospel motivation to living the Christian life. Let me give you one example. Uh, One of the things we talked about last night was that You cannot battle the affections of the flesh with the command. The command is no match for the affections of the flesh. You can only battle the affections of the flesh with the affections of the spirit, with the affections of the gospel. Only the gospel is a match in the battle against the affections of the flesh. That's why Thomas Chalmers, the great Scottish pastor said, we need the expulsive power of an alien affection in us if we are going to be able to battle against the desires of the flesh. Now that's of course, modern post 16th century reformed conservative evangelical Protestant understanding that nobody had for 1500 years prior to Calvin, wrong. Listen to Augustine. There can be no hope for me except in your great mercy. Give me the grace to do as you command and command me to do what you will. You command me to control my bodily desires.
Truly, it is by continence that we are made as one and regain the unity of self which we lost by falling apart in the search for a variety of pleasures. For a man loves you so much less if beside you he also loves something else which he does not love for your sake. O oh, love ever burning, never quenched, O oh, charity, my God, set me on fire with your love. You command me to be continent, chaste. Are you struggling with pornography, adultery? Lord, you command me to be pure. Give me the grace to do as you command and command me to do what you will. That's, that's, that's gospel affections in the war against the flesh. Command can't help you. The gospel, grace, the spirit, the affections that are created by the gospel, the grace, and the spirit can help you in that war against the flesh. Fathers can help us in so many ways. Did the fathers know the gospel? Okay, let me, let me, quick, quick statements. Did the fathers know the gospel? Yes. And no. Yes, if you mean, was the gospel lost in the days of the church fathers? No. Did the church fathers articulate the gospel, and especially things like imputation, as clearly as is necessary for it to be sufficiently sustained for the well-being of the church? No. Are the, gospel, are the fathers authoritative in how we are to read Paul and Jesus there? No. Are they helpful? Yes. Let me say, let me say why. And let me just walk you through a few passages. Listen to what the apostles say, uh, what the apostolic fathers and the early church say about uh, some of the key points of the doctrine of salvation. Just think about atonement. Here's Clement of Rome writing in the 90s. Because of the love he had for us, Jesus Christ our Lord gave his blood for us by the will of God. He gave his flesh for our flesh and his soul for our souls. Listen to Diognetus, the letter I just mentioned to you. Again, writing in the early 100s. The Father himself placed upon Christ the burden of our iniquities, and he gave his own Son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for the transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? Oh, sweet exchange! Oh, unsearchable operation! Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in the single righteous one and that the righteousness of the one should justify many transgressors. That's, that's Diognetus in the early second century. He'd obviously never read N.T. Wright. Got to pause there for a second. He's right. What he threw, that, what that little throwaway laugh line was, 
Diagnetus has not read N.T. Wright? Precisely. You see, Diagnetus, Irenaeus, Origen, Tertullian, and the gang, they are safely in the presence of the Lord. They have not been infected by postmodernity, the new perspectives on Paul and the current heresies. They are safely, safely hid from those. And as a result of it, their writings give us stuff that is just wonderful in refuting such men as N.T. Wright and the emergence. Let's continue. Melito of Sardis. Now, here, get this. Melito of Sardis preaches an Easter sermon. And where does he go for his text? Exodus 12. Passover. Here's what he says. When our Lord arose from the place of the dead and trampled death underfoot and bound the strong one and set man free, then the whole creation saw clearly that for man's sake the judge was condemned. In the place of Isaac the just, a ram appeared for slaughter in order that Isaac might be liberated from his bonds. The slaughter of this animal redeemed Isaac from death. In like manner, the Lord, being slain, saved us, being bound. He loosed us, being sacrificed. He redeemed us. He bought us back. And then Irenaeus. Now remember, Irenaeus tells us that he can remember the day when he was sitting in Smyrna under a man that he simply calls a certain elder. It was probably Papias. And that elder said to them one day, I remember sitting where you are sitting when John taught me. <laughs> right. That John. the man who laid his head on Jesus' breast. So here's Irenaeus studying under a man, studied under John. Here's what he says. To do away with the disobedience of man that had taken place at the beginning by means of a tree... He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He thereby rectified that disobedience that had occurred by reason of a tree through the obedience that was upon the tree. That is the cross. In the first Adam, we had offended God himself, for Adam did not perform God's commandment. However, in the second Adam, we are reconciled to God, being made obedient even unto death. For we were debtors to no one else but to him whose commandment we had transgressed at the beginning. By transgressing God's commandment, we became his enemies. Therefore, in the last time, the Lord has restored us into friendship through making us righteous. No. Through his incarnation, he has become the mediator between God and men, propitiating indeed for us the Father against whom we had sinned. He has canceled our disobedience by his own obedience. He has conferred upon us the gift of communion with and subjection to our maker. Read what the church fathers say about conversion. 
Church fathers didn't invent the idea of conversion. They got it from their Hebrew Bibles. And the Jewish people of the first century knew all about conversion. But listen to what Justin Martyr says about conversion. How was he converted? When I was delighting in the doctrines of Plato, I heard Christians being slandered. And yet I saw that they were fearless in death and unafraid of all other things that are considered fearful. And I realized that it was impossible that they could be living in wickedness and pleasure for what sensual and intemperate person could welcome death, which would deprive him of his enjoyment. Such a person would prefer to continue always in the present life. Now, so it's the, it's the lives of Christians that arrest his attention. It does not convert him, though. What converts him? A Christian shares the gospel with him, and then he says this. When this Christian had spoken these and many other things, he went away exhorting me to attend upon them. I have not seen him since. But immediately a flame was kindled in my soul, and I was possessed by a love of the prophets of the scriptures and of those men who are friends of Christ was converted fathers speak about justification by faith as well I only have time for this one Hillary of Poitiers was one of the church fathers prior to Augustine who highlighted the importance of justification by faith alone. And he did it by going to the Gospels. He went, for instance, to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And he used it as a case for illustrating that salvation is completely God's gift. Despite the fact that some workers are hired at the 11th hour of the day, they receive the same wages as those who were hired in the morning. The remuneration for those hired last, Hillary says, demonstrates that it was not based on merit but on grace. He says, rather God has freely granted his grace to all through justification by faith. D.H. Williams in a brilliant article called justification by faith, a patristic doctrine, says, it is historically important to note that Hillary is the first Christian theologian explicitly to have formulated what Paul left implicit by referring to God's work of grace in the phrase, fides sola justificat, justification by faith alone. Faith alone justifies. Because faith alone justifies, listen to Hillary, because faith alone justifies, publicans and prostitutes will be first in the kingdom of heaven. Then listen to what William says. There is a strong possibility that Hillary's commentary sparked or fueled a revival of Pauline studies in the West in the last decade of the 4th century. And what did that set the table for? A man named Augustine. Just in time for him to engage with a man named Pelagius. But it's happening before Augustine. This is why I didn't go to, it would be so easy to go to Augustine on justification. But I wanted you to see that before Augustine, this stuff was already 
in the water. Did the fathers know the gospel? Yes. Was the father's articulation of the gospel sufficiently clear, biblically rooted, and specific for the edification of the church? No. Doesn't that teach us we cannot assume the gospel? We can't assume it. And in many ways, they're like the man born blind in John 9. You know, he's asked, okay, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah or is he a sinner? And he says, I don't know. I just know I once was blind and now I see. They knew the reality of conversion and justification and atonement. But what the man born blind knew in John 9 was not sufficient for the living of a life of grace for a lifetime. Because, as Paul says, all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That means that whenever we assume any part of the deposit of revelation that God has given us in Scripture, we put the church at risk and in danger. Even the fathers did that. Was the gospel lost to them? No. Did they articulate like things like imputation clearly enough for the future edification of the church. No, we had to wait for that. What about people who go back and say, you see, imputation is not there. Therefore, imputation is a later idea not rooted in Scripture. Look, this will happen every time the church refines its teaching according to Scripture, becomes more specific, and then people don't like the biblical formulation that has been arrived at as the people of God sit under the judgment of Scripture. What do they want to do? They want to go back to an earlier time when the question was not defined. But that's an illegitimate way to read Christian history. The fathers are not actually their friends because the fathers weren't in that fight in the 16th century. You don't ask them to articulate with the clarity of the brothers in the 15th and the 16th and the 17th century that are in that conversation. And you don't hide behind their ambiguity when the church has done hard work sitting under Scripture. Where do you start then in reading the fathers? I would encourage you to start with Augustine's Confessions. Then I would encourage you to read the Apostolic Fathers. Pick up the edition edited by Lightfoot, Harmer, and Holmes. It's a wonderful Greek and English translation that's available, handsomely bound. By the way, reading the Apostolic Fathers as glorious as they are will prove to you the inspiration of Scripture. Because when you read the New Testament and you read the Apostolic Fathers, you realize you have just fallen off a cliff. The fathers, as helpful as they are, in no way compare to the glory of the New Testament. So you want to prove inspiration, the New Testament, read the fathers, read the New Testament. My case is closed. So read the fathers. And then I would suggest that you read Tertullian. Read his prescription against heretics because it is so relevant to today and our so-called postmodern setting. And then read his apology in which he gives us those famous phrases. 
Christians are not born. They are made. And yet he can say in the same passage, the soul is by nature Christian. What does he mean by that? We all have indelibly written on us via the Imago Dei. A sense of deity. We know that there is truth and error, right and wrong, a God who is to be worshipped. And yet, we seek to suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But the soul keeps dragging that truth back from time to time. We're dragged before the throne of God. And Tertullian is one of the great one-liners of all time. In the prescription against, uh, in the apology, he's writing against the Romans who are persecuting Christians. And he says to them, you say in the Colosseum, the Christians to the lion. What? All the Christians to one lion? Augustine is, uh, uh, Tertullian is filled with lines like that. He is an absolute sheer delight to read. He also articulated the term Trinity for us in arguing against Praxius, who was teaching Patropassianism, that it was the Father who died on the cross, not Jesus. And he said, Oh, Praxius, you heretic, who has crucified the Father and driven away the Holy Spirit. The fathers will edify you. You will find them useful. But you need to read them, though with respect, carefully, and under the authority of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to be good students of the history of your providence in the church. That you would always keep us under the authority of Scripture. But that we would never excommunicate 20 centuries of our forebears in Christ who lived and died in union with the same one in whom we are in union. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there you have it, a good, sober-minded, biblical view of how to look at the fathers. And some good advice, too, by the way. I don't think I can add to it. Just need to remind you all that Christ died for your sins. Yeah, it, it, was the gospel in the, is it in the fathers? Clearly, clearly. But that wasn't what was under attack either. And it's there. And it's wonderfully expounded. And even the fathers would tell you, Christ died for your sins. That's the message we've been given to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, regardless of time, because Christ will be with us to the very end of the age. That's the idea. All right, need to remind you all one last time, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew. The other says donate. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to fill in the amount as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 
508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. <sighs> Would love to get your feedback on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next time, may God, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.